was on uh, February 15th, 2015, so coming up on almost nine years ago, members of ISIS beheaded 20 Coptic Christians plus one from Ghana on the beach in Ceuta, Libya, um, to display the wor- to the world this commitment to the teachings of Islam, they very deliberately posted a video of this event online. So the majority of the Christian men who were killed that day, they came from a poor village in Upper Egypt. They were working in Libya and sending money back to support their families. They were held by uh, their captors for 43 days in which they were tortured and, and ordered each day to recite the Islamic Shahada, which says, I declare there is no other God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And the Christian captives, they refused to do this each and every day. And just before they were executed, the martyrs were heard softly but boldly declaring in Arabic, Ya Rabbi Yeshua, O Lord Jesus. So people around the world, they saw this horrific scene. They also heard, so they, they saw this horrific scene, but they also heard the verbal testimony of Christian faith amid severe persecution. So this proclamation, an outward expression of devotion to Christ and suffering, and when faced with death, this is in line with martyrs, with those who are put to death for Christ in the early church. This is directly in line for this outward verbal proclamation. So many of, uh, in the early church, many of our brothers and sisters, they would give a verbal witness of the reality of who Jesus is during their trials and even just before they were executed. There's uh, consistent, long-standing records of this happening. So one writer, he points out, this makes perfect sense for them to do this. When pressured to deny their faith, they leaned into the core of their spiritual formation and they articulated the essence of their faith. So on one hand, they were preaching the gospel to themselves. And then on the other hand, their testimonies were a clear and articulate witness to their interrogators, their executioners, and everyone else in the vicinity. So over the centuries, Christians, they've proven that when faced, even when faced with death, even when denying Jesus, even when denying Jesus would ease pain, would maybe free them from prison, would allow them to stay in relationship with family and parents, would allow them to to not be murdered if they would renounce Christ, they won't do it. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, they endure persecution of all kinds. And they even recite and proclaim the foundation of their faith in the heat of the moment to prove their allegiance to the Lord. What is that? (laughs) Like, how can that be? How can that happen? I think about the situation that those Coptic Christians were in, and, and I wonder, I wonder what I say, oh, Lord Jesus, in that moment. How does it happen? So we're coming back to the Sermon on the Mount this morning in Matthew 5. We're at the end of the portion of Jesus' teaching to his disciples on this Galilean hillside known as the Beatitudes. So if you want to look in your copy of the scriptures, we are back in 
Matthew 5 this morning. And just to reorient ourselves as, we, as we've had our, our, our four weeks of looking at biblical stewardship, praise God for that. So to reorient ourselves with the Sermon on the Mount, where we had been tracking uh, prior to the new year, the Beatitudes, this, this virtue list for disciples of Jesus, but the traits that we see, they aren't typical of societies and they're not typical characteristics that are admired um, in societies. If you think about it, the first three of these Beatitudes, if you, if you can look there, the first three, and, and Jonathan has read these this morning, the first three name weakness and neediness. So what kind of society sets a goal or like the aspired way of life for citizens to be poor in spirit, mournful, or meek? It is not typical. And this Greek word interpreted for blessing, makarios, it usually is translated as happy or even carefree. Um, but who is happy, but then also poor and hungry? Who's happy, but also mourns? Who's happy and carefree when persecuted? How can this be? That is the question. How can this be? So in past sermons on this point, we've seen Jesus. He's showing his followers that the blessed life is the fulfilled, the flourishing life. And he gives this picture for us. So pick back up with me in verse 10, but just before, prior to chapter 5, remember what the setting is, what's going on. It says, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. These great crowds are here in the hearing of this teaching. He's addressing his disciples who came to him. And then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me once again. God, thank you for your word, its integrity, its power, its clarity. Help us to obey. Help us to obey. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So we want to consider what is rejoicing, what is, it, what is it to be exceedingly glad when it doesn't make sense, when it doesn't make sense. So for us, I think there is something to look at when we see persecution mentioned in the scriptures and then talk about, okay, persecution as relevant to our life and our setting. So a question we wanna see, what is the nature maybe the potential or possible or maybe present nature of the persecution that we face on account of Christ? And how do we rejoice because of it? How could we, or maybe how can we, or how might we rejoice because of it? And consider that it's the grace of God that causes us to believe and hold tightly to the pure gospel truth that we, because of the grace of God and his power, the, the belief that we have, the confidence that we have, the holding fast that we would have in any circumstance is a gift of his grace and we would not relent, we would not water down, we would not try to dilute the gospel truth. What does this persecution look like? So for our roadmap as we set up, we're gonna see from these three verses, we're gonna see the root of persecution 
we'll see the, the cause of persecution, yes, in the first century, but then potentially or possibly for us, the root of persecution, the fruit of persecution, like what is it intended to result in? The fruit of persecution. And then lastly, the joy of persecution. And, and with that question, how can this be? How can persecuting, uh, persecution and joy go together? We want to consider that. So the Sermon on the Mount, as we look at the whole of the teaching here, and including this portion, it's maybe misunderstood, misunderstood and, and at many times and in, with many uh, types of people trying to weigh in on, on why is Jesus teaching in this way? Why is he teaching the, the, the uh, matters that he did? So it can't be misunderstood. So some say like it's the way to be saved, like it's a way to live out and, and prove salvation. Obedience leads to heaven. Some, some kind of say that. They get that from this teaching. Others can call it like a charter for world peace, that if nations would accept it, that there, there could be pre peace breaking out, the peaceful way to live. And others say that it's an application for all future, you know, uh, heaven, kingdom, citizenry, like that's all in the future. Some say that. But we're closing in on, and I'm just, just to get us ahead a little bit, and we will come through it in, in a matter of weeks as we're preaching through it. But we're closing in on a verse as we go, and we'll see that is, the, I think, the key to understanding the sermon. I think it's the key to understanding the sermon. So if you want to just drop down and look, Matthew 5.20. Matthew 5.20, when he says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you picked up on, we have a lot here about certain virtues. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see in our passage today, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth. They shall um, be uh, called sons of God. All this language used, talking about inheriting the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of heaven. And then Christ is going to get to where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders of the day, the ones that that Galilean crowd on the hillside there would have acknowledged as the ones who are the epitome, the example of righteousness, rightness, obedience, the example of what it is to be in favor with God or have God's uh, being pleased with them, that he would say that unless your righteousness exceeds them, is, is much more than theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the main theme is true righteousness. What Christ is trying to get at, hey, what is true righteousness? The religious leaders, he's going to say we are maybe familiar if we know the gospel accounts. He engages with these religious leaders on multiple occasions to show them their righteousness is not true in fact artificial it's in fact external it's in fact all a facade it's all based on in many cases like man-made extra laws that they've put in place and it's only in obedience with external acts so they can receive the praise of men it's not true is what he's saying but the righteousness that jesus describes is a true and vital righteousness that begins internally in the heart so as we start to unpack and see this question, how can these things be? Understand the root of it is an internal heart change that ushers in and allows us to really have and live out, gradually growing in, true righteousness, rightness before God. 
So in verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So those who have this vital, true righteousness that results, it results only from God's grace, only from one's heart being changed, they will be, he says, because of the heart change, because of the true righteousness by God's grace, they will be harassed, they will be ridiculed, they will suffer, and they will be persecuted because of that real righteousness that has taken place. That's why they suffer. And he says, theirs is the inheritance. Theirs is the inheritance of Christ's present and future reign. Theirs is the kingdom. It's already in place in God's universal reign. So understand that the language there, it says theirs is the kingdom. It's not theirs will be. It's because of what's taken place, because of the true righteousness. They're, yes, going to experience the persecution, but it's because of the true righteousness that's ushered in by the grace of God, theirs is presently the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing to do that, that gets them in. So friends, think of receiving this teaching by Jesus. Think of, again, in that first century setting, receiving this teaching there on the hillside and to have any understanding that he is saying, to be able to have this understanding to see And at the time, they may have not seen the confrontations he's going to have with the religious leaders, but to understand what Jesus would be teaching at that time. And he's saying, for one, he's stating emphatically, like, like I'm the better Moses, the one that you see as as the leader, the one that you see as the one who was able to usher the, the Jewish people out of Egyptian slavery, that Jesus is saying, I am coming. I'm coming here in in, in a spirit of authority and speaking the law of God, speaking the truth as Moses had done and maybe in centuries past that they had been taught. So he's speaking with the authority and he's leading them not out of Egyptian slavery, but out of sin and darkness into the eternal kingdom. He's saying theirs because of true righteousness that I'm bringing them in and delivering them into, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will inherit the promised land a new prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 shows that this is what, in fact, Moses himself had spoken of, the one. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From among your brothers, it is him to who you shall listen. Deuteronomy 18.15. So the root of persecution, the cause of it, the root of persecution is a response to righteousness that comes from Jesus, delivering one's life from bondage to sin. So the cause or the root of persecution is the response to one being truly righteous, having that vital, actual, authentic righteousness that comes from God who has delivered, delivered the one from bondage to sin. And so the response to that true righteousness is going to be persecution in some way, shape, or form. Paul, he gets into speaking about this true righteousness and the effect that it has in life. When he says in Colossians 3, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So this true righteousness leads us to, again, look up. Look up. It's not solely and always just looking around. So he says, goes on, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is true righteousness. One's life is completely hidden by Christ. What is 
and the righteousness, it is Christ. So a life completely hidden with Christ and God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Because of that true righteousness, a life that's hidden in Christ, shrouded or clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, when he appears, when he uh, uh, descends or comes again in his second coming, we will also appear with him in glory. That is the gift of grace. That is the root of persecution is this true vital righteousness that's ushered in by Jesus alone. And then he goes on to teach, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. So he's saying you're experiencing this gospel flourishing life when people, he says you're experiencing it when people maybe insult you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They lie about you. They persecute you. They slander you. He's saying it's because of me, because of Jesus. He's saying they, on my account, they're trying to defame me. They're fine, trying to discredit me. And that's why you can experience blessing when they do that because it is against Christ. So the fruit of persecution, the fruit of persecution, what does it result in? He's saying it results in the opportunity to share Christ. Why would someone slander? Why could someone come in and utter all kinds of evil against anyone on the account of Christ? It's because they've heard something about Christ from that person. So the fruit of persecution is the opportunity to share Christ. It results in, it's been um, caused by some sort of living out a sharing of Christ being associated, being accounted with Jesus. And then the effects, the, the effects of it is an opportunity to continue or further share Christ. So this reason for opposition is because it's known, again, you've given an account. Again, given an account of Jesus' saving effect in your life. And even as we considered with the martyrs, even as we considered looking at even even contemporary times, martyrs that, that gave a verbal witness about who Jesus is before they were killed, persecution, even in the midst of it, it presents this, this another opportunity, yet another opportunity to share the gospel message. So the root of persecution is the righteousness given by Jesus. It's because of him that one would experience persecution in any way, shape, or form. And then the fruit of it is the opportunity born out of it, the blessing born out of it, to share Christ consistently. And in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. This is where it kind of comes into, like, how can this be? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying, get excited. Be deeply content because you're confident. Because of the confidence, all this suffering will be rewarded in heaven. Be exceedingly glad of the future reward. So he's saying, those that I've appointed to speak on my behalf have experienced this treatment throughout the ages. Don't forget that. So one writer says this, this idea that true faith and persecution are inseparably linked should not be that surprising to us. So true faith and persecution, just the fact that those are linked together, they're connected, it should not be surprising to us. Martin Luther, he said that there's always opposition when the gospel is preached plainly and accurately. 
that he wasn't the first to experience that. He's not the last to suffer for the biblical gospel. Jesus himself, he did not promise that we would have an easy existence, but that we would have trouble in this world. So our cause for rejoicing is the fact that he has overcome the world. And he will deliver an eternal reward to his people. Not that we will never suffer pain for Christ's name. He's clear on this in John 16. Jesus, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So the joy of persecution is we have evidence that we have proclaimed Christ. We have evidence that the one who has overcome the world, the one who is greater than us and the world, lives in us. So we we proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ and the only son of the Father, the eternal king whose death on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead is perfect and and the only way to get the gift of heaven. The joy of persecution is there's evidence that that message, that articulated, accurate, not diluted, not watered down gospel has come out of us in our lives. And we can have joy because of what we will be rewarded in heaven for. So this is connecting with the reality of the plight of our early brothers and sisters. In the first century church, we have uh, Acts 5, the religious leaders, They hear the gospel message, and what's their response? To the early church, to Peter and John, they are going to not like it. It says in Acts 5, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So they were speaking in the name of Jesus. And they were persecuted for speaking about Jesus. So they beat them charged them not to speak, and they let him go. Then they left the presence of the council, the apostles rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left the presence rejoicing. Is this not what we see here? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So how, how can this be? What is this gonna look like? What could this look like in our own lives? How can we rejoice exceedingly when suffering? We've also been told earlier in this same teaching that blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. How can we have both of these things, exceedingly great joy and rejoicing and yet mourning? And then the blessing that results from that. Paul writes about this contrast, about this mystery in the life of one whose heart has been changed. He says, 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. John Piper kind of describes the reality of this for the Christian as a boulder, like a large boulder on the coast of the sea. That is our joy. That is our joy in Christ. It is unmovable and it is there. But then the mourning, the suffering, Maybe the the forms of persecution may come and go like the water on the tide. And less of our joy may be evident or shown, but yet it's still unmovable. And there'll be times where the tide uh, comes in and out. It ebbs and flows with, with the mourning and the suffering that we experience and we express and feel. 
yet the joy is always there. And the joy is revealing itself as our unmoved rock. So how can this be? How can one experience persecution for the sake of Christ? How can one have the fruit of their persecution result in further gospel proclamation? Like in the, in the, the throes of being tortured, executed, be able to speak about our Lord Jesus. How can this be? And how can our joy be a result of experiencing anything like this? Well, I think for us, I think for us it would be not thinking about, in, in my experience in my life, I've never been threatened with jail or being a Christian. Um, we could go do this thing out on the street, and I think we're going to be fine. It may be a little more fun out there. Um, there's, there's groups of, of, of ladies, there's groups of men that we meet and open Bibles in Starbucks and McDonald's. And we, we can be in public places. We can express, we can go to the staff of those public place restaurants or wherever, and we can tell them all day long about Jesus with really no fear of reprisal, to my, to my knowledge or in my experience. So what is the application for us? How is this relevant to us at all? I think what we see in our culture is, it's more not assuming the persecution, but just wanting to avoid the persecution. That it's just wanting to avoid maybe any opportunity or possibility of, of maybe ridicule or making someone uncomfortable or making someone upset or angry. Or else, why would we be in the state we're in as church at large in America? Three ways, if you would consider with me, three ways to avoid persecution. Here's three ways we can do it. If we want to avoid it, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Maybe our, our circumstances are that we don't, we don't fear it as much, any sort of even ridicule or, or losing friends. But here's, here's three ways if we just want to avoid it for all time. Here we go. And if you don't want to be slandered, here's three ways to avoid it. Veil or hide your faith. Veil or hide your faith. The reality of what you believe about Jesus as the only way to peace with God, make that unknown in any way, shape, or form to those around, who, uh, who are around you consistently. Veil or hide your faith and you will avoid persecution. Absolutely. But we know that contradicts what we're going to get to in the passage that Jesus says, you are a light to the world, a city on a hill. He says, let that light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So we can avoid persecution, but we're going to be disobedient to Jesus. Number two, to avoid persecution, we can fight against the forces that would come against us because of Jesus. We can get really angry. We can argue and try to win all the debates. We could take up arms. We could take legal action, confrontation, and we could try to snuff out any form of strong persecution or strong opposition. So there is a place. Now hear me. So as I'm saying, like those responses are, are wrong. Like those are responses that we're trying to avoid the persecution. But there is a place within the church, yes, there is a place for rebuke, for confrontation, for accountability. Paul rebuked many times within the community of Christians. 
He says in 1 Corinthians, we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. That's what he says. When, we per when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And Paul was one who uh, many times rebuked those within the church. But then he says to the outward facing world, he says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. When slandered, we entreat. When persecuted, we endure. That's the righteous response. So there has to be this expectance. There has to be this acceptance of harshness outside the church. So what are we going to put our energy toward? And what are we going to fight for? It can't be to avoid persecution. The third way, and maybe the most common way that people avoid persecution to dilute or water down the gospel in our lives, our families, and churches. So with my girls, I used to, I was just cheap, so I was trying to save money. I would dilute their juice, like fruit juice, just to stretch it farther. And I thought, it's too much sugar, so it's for their good. But they didn't like that. Jaden kind of liked it, but they didn't like when I would dilute the juice. But how would we dilute? The gospel. How can we water down the gospel again in our lives, our families, our churches? It can be watered down by cheapening grace. Just saying that the grace of God, that true vital righteousness, that actual faith, that true faith, that enduring faith actually leads to no life change. There's no reason to put sin to death. There's no gradually growing in Christ likeness. It's just, hey, you be you, and it's all grace, free grace. Cheap grace. And I just, just hear me, you know it, it is alive and well in America today. That teaching that grace leads to no change in the life of the individual. So we can cheap grace. We can dilute the gospel. We can remove Jesus as the only way of salvation. So the Bible is explicitly clear about the nature of sin and what sin is. Absolutely, the wages of sin is death. But then the Bible is also clear that the only way to heaven is Jesus. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus said it as well. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. So the exclusivity of Jesus, we can deny it and say, Muhammad, Hindu gods, everybody, it's all kind of the same. We're all the same. Absolutely not. That's a dilution of the gospel. That's a way to avoid persecution. So three ways in conclusion, three ways to not. So we don't want to dilute the gospel. The root, the fruit, the joy of persecution comes as a result of the gospel changing our lives. And we have that true righteousness. It is a gift. So three ways we cannot water down the gospel in our own lives. Love God more than people. Again, it's not just looking around at what's in front of us. It is this posture and this heart and this, the, the mind that is set on the things that are above. And looking to God as ultimate and supreme and, and our goal and our, the, the lover of our soul, the, the almighty one who can help us and hears us and sees us. But we love him more than people. But the change in his life allows us to truly love people. But he's the source of it. Number two, we can pray for the persecuted church. 
I think engaging with the real present-day plight of believers that truly are experiencing harsh, harsh persecution is a way to keep us sensitive and a way to keep us engaged and sensitive to the gospel power in our lives and to the church. Um, one just good application of this, Voice of the Martyrs is a good organization that gives reports on what's going on around the world. You can sign up online on their website for a free magazine every month. Gets accounts of the persecuted church. And then their, their prayer app, their mobile app, Voice of the Martyrs, is great. Just keeping up with and praying for brothers and sisters that are enduring. And then number three, live in community with gospel influencers. Live in person and allow those that influence us to have, have a articulated, strong, clear, present sense of what the gospel is, and they're not deviating from it. I know I, I worked with young people a lot, young people in the church, and they would be so heavily influenced by online quasi-Christian people. And they're just going along with these ideas and not testing it by Scripture, not, not coming to trusted ones and saying, is this theologically orthodox? Is this theologically healthy? Is this true? Is this in line with the gospel? We have to live in community with trusted believers and allow us to collectively influence one another consistently to shape our thoughts and feelings about God and to shape our ongoing endurance in the true gospel. Not be influenced by those that water it down and love people and the praise of men more than pleasing God. So we see as the martyrs there the 21 martyrs of 2015 and the early church martyrs in the, the Roman Empire, they, they, they have much to teach, much to teach the global church today. So they recognized that part of following Jesus was the expectation of suffering, the expectation of suffering, laying down their lives instead of denying their faith or bowing to idols. So when pressured and squeezed by their persecutors, they articulated the gospel to the point of death. But we also see that faithfulness in the moment of testing is, all, is, is more times than not the fruit of earlier discipleship. So faithfulness in the moment of persecution is usually the result, God intends it to be the result of earlier discipleship. So those who witness as, as faithful martyr, martyrs, they can do so because they've been trained to treasure Christ, been trained to treasure Christ. So as we see this, this the Beatitudes, this beautiful picture of, of who Christ is, and we think about what he's done to allow us to experience this true vital righteousness in our lives, and understanding that it is about experiencing and living out and believing in union with Christ, conformity with Christ, gradually growing in Christ's likeness. That's the sanctification process that every true believer is in. So it does lead to life change. And it does bring about, among other things, endurance in our faith, a deepening in our faith. But please, let's not neglect the way God does that. So the miracle, like how can this all be? The grace and power of God is the, is the answer. This righteousness is not earned, it's given to us as a gift. But understand he has ways of doing it. And it, they are ordinary. That we don't neglect prayer, individually and corporately, that we don't neglect 
the book that he's given us and hearing preaching and teaching and studying those are the ordinary ways that he brings us into union with himself. And then also observing the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism. There are ways that this endurance, there's ways that enduring in the face and the perseverance in the face of even harsh persecution is accomplished by the Spirit of God. It is a miracle that he can save us. It is a miracle that he can do this in our lives. He gives us his true righteousness. But understand, the ways that he does, he does it are ordinary and consistent and progressive. So I would just say as a church, let's not, not neglect those things. And, and we experience, what a blessing we have to experience those things together, described in the first century church and prescribed for the church for all time. We are not about new, unique ways of accomplishing what God has set forth for us to live out. Tried and true methods that he's given up to us. God accomplishes miraculous new life, not only by prescribing for us these means, but doing a work in our lives. So the last thing, if you would just flip over. I was thinking this week about the parable of the soils. The miracle that it is, how can this be, is it's true faith. True faith that takes root in one's heart. So a little bit uh, in another spot in Matthew The parable of the sower and the seed. Matthew, sorry, 13. Understand his teaching here. He's saying, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Just know the result of how one experiences and responds to per- persecution comes as a result of the true gift of faith. So putting our, just the assessment, aligning our hearts, aligning where we're at in life with our, our, our thoughts and, and behaviors and everything with the Sermon on the Mount, with the, the parable of the, the soils and see, God, have I surrendered to you? Have I repented and believed once and for all? Have I experienced this vital righteousness? It is a miracle and it is the gift Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your gift of new life. The word describes it as new birth. And we see it as a miracle of your divine grace and power. So Lord, would, if anyone's here, even this morning, that hasn't acknowledged the truth of who you are, the gift that's only found in Jesus by faith alone, through grace alone, and and, and Christ alone. Lord, that, that that would be the result of what you accomplish through your ordinary ways, even this morning. 
become part of your kingdom. And I pray that in Jesus' precious name.